Welcome to Youth Talk Climate, an environmental issues podcast by young people for young people. This podcast is created in association with the Alliance for Climate Education. The Boundary Waters is a wonderful and intricate place that boasts vast amounts of fauna and flora. But according to Tom Landwer, the director of the Save the Boundary Waters campaign, the Boundary Waters is in danger of becoming polluted through mining interests around it. In this episode, we dive into the threat that the Boundary Waters faces. Welcome, Tom. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. For sure. Our first question is just describe a little bit about what you do for the Boundary Waters and the Save the Boundary Waters campaign. Okay. Well, so the organization I'm with is called Northeastern Minnesotans for Wilderness, and it was formed like in 1996 in order to make sure that the wilderness and the wilderness character were all preserved, that it wasn't damaged, and you know that it was there for future generations. And and so uh, over the years, we've been involved in a lot of things, but most recently, almost all of our effort has been going into fighting a proposed sulfide or copper mine that is on the edge of the Boundary Waters. It's not in the Boundary Waters, just outside the Boundary Waters, but it's in the watershed of the Boundary Waters. So all the water that comes off this site is going to go into the Boundary Waters. And we know that because of the history of this kind of mine elsewhere in the United States, that it would have a devastating impact on the boundary waters. So we have been working, you know, with Congress, we've been working with the government, we've been working with the state now uh, and through the lawsuits to try and prevent this mine from moving forward. And, and it's still very early in the process that it would take to get a mine approved, but we're trying to make sure it just does not go any further. Yeah. A lot of that is outreach to people. You know, so we have a really big social media presence. We've got a great website, Facebook page and everything. We're always trying to tell people what's going on because there's so many things going on. There's so many ways that people can help. Uh, you know, savetheboundarywaters.org is our website and there's tons and tons of good information on there. People can sign up to get, you know, alerts and uh, calls to action and things like that. But uh, really, you know, we've just been overwhelmed by how much support we've gotten across the whole United States, even in other countries. Yeah, that is awesome. For those who aren't familiar, could you tell us about the Boundary Waters? Where are they? What are they like? And why are they important? Absolutely. And so, you know, the, the United States has a series of different types of public lands. So there's national parks, and everybody knows about Glacier National Park, and there's there's wildlife refuges, you know, National Wildlife Refuges, Horicon Wildlife Refuge in Wisconsin is a big one. But there's also these all these federal wilderness areas. And so a federal wilderness area is an area where there's no development of any kind permitted or allowed. Most of the federal wilderness areas in the United States are in the western part of the United States. So they're west of the Rockies. So there's big, big forests out there in the mountains where that are, that are wilderness. In the eastern half of the United States, the Boundary Waters is the second largest wilderness area in the eastern United States, uh, uh, behind only the Everglades in Florida, which is really not an accessible area. So the Boundary Waters is 1.1 million acres of designated federal wilderness. It's up on the border of Minnesota and Canada. It straddles that border for probably 100 miles. On the other side of the border is Aquatico Provincial Park, which is another wilderness area. And it is just this tremendous mix of pristine forests, water still clear in the lakes. You can drink it straight out of the lake with a cup. Uh, you know, iconic wildlife like moose and lynx and wolves and bears and fish like lake trout, you know, things that you just don't see anywhere else. And so it's a, the biggest uh, national wildlife 
uh, excuse me, National Wilderness, east of the Rockies, north of the Everglades. It's the most popular wilderness in the country. It gets over 150,000 visitors a year. And it's just totally unique because it is one of the only places you can go and spend days in a canoe going from lake to lake over the portages and get into places where you will not see another person for, you know, as long as you're there. So it's just a very, very cool place. And, you know, a year like last year when COVID had everybody staying home, um, the Boundary Waters was still, it, was, it had its, one of its best years ever because you can go up there and be social distance, right? You're on opposite ends of a canoe and that's a 16 foot distance, right? So you're twice yeah. as far as you need to be. And then you're out in the woods in the fresh air where you're not by any other people. It just got tremendous love last year and it probably will again this year. Mm, yeah, it's just such an amazing place. I went up there this past summer. Oh, Do you, you have? I did, yeah. <laughs> we actually have, if you go to our website, uh, savetheboundarywise.org, we've actually got a 360 video. So if nobody's ever been up there, you know, you can hold up your phone and you're like, oh, here's what it looks like. And here's what it's like to paddle. Here's what it's like to fish. You know, it's not quite the same as gives you <laughs> pace. Sure. Where'd you go into? We entered on like the Ely um, side okay. and then went into like Farm Lake and then up the Kwishwe River. Oh, very cool. Well, yeah. Right by ground, ground zero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have a personal experience or story with the Boundary Waters that makes it so, that makes you passionate about your work, that sort of thing? So when I was, um, I think it was a sophomore in high school, I worked for a summer at a resort, which is in Grand Marais, which is on the Gunflint Trail on the other side of the Boundary Waters. And um, on weekends when I wasn't working, we'd go up the Gunflint Trail and we'd go into the Boundary Waters or into the national forest that's around the Boundary Waters. And I just really fell in love with it. So, you know, I was 17 years old, 16, well, actually 15 years old at the time. I uh, just fell in love with it. I've been going up there every year since. Um, I've made a couple of trips that were 10 days long, you know, a lot of trips that are just three and four days long. I brought my kids up there and they've had a great time up there. And uh, my brother, Jim, actually wrote a book called uh, Dirty Shirt. <laughs> that talks about how when we were kids how we found out you know we we're city kids that we didn't know the wilderness but how we all kind of got introduced to the boundary waters and he tells about you know some really in, in, a, in a in a funny way some really kind of amazing uh, experiences up there and and so uh you know the whole family got involved and uh, uh actually one of my brothers passed away and we we uh, put some of his ashes up there uh, uh right on gabriel lake so Long family history there, and uh, we all love it. I still go up two or three times a year. A favorite, a favorite story might be one uh, semester we had in when I was in high school. We had a spring break, and we we're supposed to go do something wild. So a couple of pals and I were going to ride our bikes from uh, St. Paul up to the Gunflint Trail, which is about 260 miles, and we're going to camp up, you know, on the edge of the Boundary Waters. So we started biking and. We just did not go very fast at all. It took us three days to get to Duluth. We had a snowstorm. So we decided to hitchhike up the rest of the way. We left our boat, bikes at a hotel. We hitchhiked up to Grand Marais, hitchhiked up the Gunflint Trail. This is April. We got up the Gunflint Trail. We had our fishing rods. We're all ready. There was two feet of snow on the ground and three feet of ice on the lakes. And we were just totally unprepared for winter camping. And so mark it down as a, a learning experience. I love that Dirty Shirt is the name of your brother's book. That's just such a great name. 
And the reason it's named that is because he, he was preparing to go off. Uh, we were both kids. He was preparing to go off on a trip and he came down and he said, well, I'm getting ready to go, Tom. And I said, looked at him. I said, well, Jim, you're, you got your shirt's dirty. You can't go. You can't start out your trip with a dirty shirt. You know, it's going to be dirty when you get back. You start with a clean shirt. And I don't remember that. He remembers that, but that's how he came. <laughs> so you mentioned, you touched on this a bit earlier, but could you tell us about this threat of a mine near the Boundary Waters and uh, how big of a threat and why that's? So um, in this part of Minnesota, there are known deposits of copper and nickel, as well as other precious metals like platinum and palladium and so on. Um, and um, in 1966, a company called International Nickel uh, uh, applied for a lease to mine in this area, which is just outside the boundary waters. I mentioned Gabriel Lake, that's the closest lake to it. It's on the Quishwe River, right adjacent to the Quishwe River. So there is a, a lake that's uh, just outside the boundary waters called Birch Lake. It's, a, it's actually a motorized lake. You can, you can take boats on it. It's got a forest service campground on it. Beautiful, beautiful lake. But the mine would be located right next to that Birch Lake. So the Cushwee River comes out of the Boundary Waters, goes into Birch Lake. It turns around, it goes back into the Boundary Waters. And the mine uh, would be right there adjacent to that lake. Anything that comes off that lake, uh, excuse me, comes off that mine, runs into the lake, and then runs back into the Boundary Waters. Um, so that lease was granted in 1966. Uh, it was renewed a couple other times. It was, it was uh, terminated. The federal government uh, ended that lease in, 19, in 2016 under the Obama administration said, you know, you guys have not done what you said you were going to do. Um, we don't think a mine is the appropriate site here in any event, so we're going to stop the lease. Well, lo and behold, Trump comes along in 2017 and very quickly after that renewed those leases. So here was a project that was completely dead and gone, it was brought back to life like a Frankenstein mine. And so since that time, the mine company has now put forward its plan. And uh, if you look on our website, you'll see what this site looks like now. It's all forest right next to this big lake. And what they're proposing to do is bulldoze down two square miles of trees, uh, fill wetlands, essentially make it into a gravel parking lot, two square miles, and, um, and then dig. It's, the mine would be underground, so they'll dig these tunnels to go underground to mine the minerals. They have to bring all of that stuff up. The mineral content is only, it's less than 1%. So if they take out 99 pounds of rock, they get less than one pound of mineral. In fact, it's like three tenths of a pound, which means that they've got just a whole bunch of waste rock, right? So they're gonna dig these big underground holes. They're gonna bring all this stuff up. They'll be able to put half of that waste back or not quite half, but that means that they're gonna leave a tailings pile that's two thirds of a square mile in size, 430 acres. It's 130 feet tall. The trees in that area are 50 feet tall. So imagine this is gonna be 80 feet taller than the trees, like this big pile of black sand that will be there forever. And, and that is bad enough on its own, but all of this stuff contains all kinds of heavy metals and things that are really bad, like sulfate. Sulfate is a product of sulfur when, sulfur, when sulfate mixes with water and air, it can turn into sulfuric acid. And so you get what's called acid mine drainage. So you got this, you got this tailing site there with all this waste on it that's gonna be there forever. And over time, it's gonna be leaching all of these pollutants and these heavy metals. You know, the company is proposing these uh, 
grand plans to collect the stuff, but we know that that's, they can't do that forever. It'll fail at some point, and that pollution is going to get into the, into the water. And even if the, the, the proponents will tell you, well, it'll meet all the state standards. Well, even if it does, the state standards still don't protect anything that pure. And so, for instance, sulfate, which I mentioned, um, in, the, in Birch Lake, there's 1.5 parts per million of sulfate right now. So it is present in the environment. But the mine would be allowed to release 10 parts per million of sulfate. So a six-fold increase in the amount of sulfate would be allowable under state law. And if you do that, you have all kinds of consequences. It changes the plant growth, it changes the animal, uh, the, the insect growth in there. And it also serves to release mercury. There's mercury that comes you know, from the atmosphere, from the burning of coal. It's tied up in the bottom sediments. When you put sulfate in the water, it releases that mercury. Mercury is picked up by bugs. The bugs are eaten by minnows. The minnows are eaten by big fish and it accumulates, it bioaccumulates all the way up the chain. And then people, catch and eat those fish, including, you know, the, the Native Americans that live in the area, including the visitors that come to the area. And mercury in your system is a really bad thing. So it has all of these ripple effects that happen um, uh, because, it's, uh, because of where it is and the purity of that area. They would propose to operate that mine for 20 years. They're talking about 20,000 tons a day coming out. They, this place is nowhere near anything. It's 12 miles away from Ely, which is the closest town. That's a population of like 3,000. They would have to load this. So they, they refine it and they take that 1% and they load that into a truck. And then that truck has to drive 150 miles to the town of Duluth, where they then load it onto a ship. So they got 80 semis a day running to the small little town where there are literally no semis running through right now and uh, just all of the noise and dust and everything else that, that brings along with it. So it's just a terribly inappropriate place for this mine. The, the Boundary Waters was recently granted a dark sky sanctuary designation, meaning it's one of the places in the United, one of the few places in the United States where you can go and there's no light pollution. So you can see the stars, you can see the Milky Way and everything. Well, this mine will be running 24 seven and they're gonna have big industrial lights all around the whole site again, just outside the edge of the Boundary Water. So just huge impacts, uh, even if it was meeting all state standards, it would have this devastating impact on the Boundary Waters. For sure, a huge impact. And that just is really difficult. You mentioned that the company that is proposing this is, it's called Twin Metals Minnesota, but that's a wholly owned branch of Anafagasta, which is a Chilean mining giant. The only mines they've got so far are down in Chile. They've got a terrible record of environmental and human rights abuses. This will be their first mine outside of Chile. And so you'll often hear people say, well, we need these minerals for the you know, green economy. We got to secure our domestic um, supply of minerals. Well, here we are, we've got these minerals and we're giving them to a Chilean company that sells almost everything they mine to China. And so what that means is, you know, in 2021, we'll be, uh, Anafagasta will be taking these minerals, shipping them to China. In 2022, we'll be buying them back from China. So there's no domestic security. There's no, you know, made in America. It's all still going to make, make us dependent on a foreign entity. So all of the arguments that you hear are, are just false. You'll hear a lot about jobs or we need these jobs. It'll be 700 jobs for 20 years. Well, there's a very robust wilderness economy up there right now outfitters small businesses you know resorts mom and pop type things 
and many of those would go belly up if the mine was allowed to proceed. So there was a, an a economic analysis done by a Harvard economist, and he said that over 20 years uh, of the life of this mine, you will lose more jobs, you will lose more income uh, if the mine goes ahead than if it doesn't. For sure. Just devastating costs. And so you mentioned earlier about how there's an or- your organization is has many has lawsuits in place. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? You bet. So we're actually working on four different lawsuits right now. First two lawsuits really challenge the federal government because of the reinstatement that Trump did for these leases, right? They were lawfully terminated under, under Obama. Trump administration came in and they did, took two steps. They reinstated them and they renewed them. We're challenging on both those steps. And then they also then rushed out some additional prospecting leases, some leases so the company could go and drill holes in other areas to see if there's minerals there. And they, and again, they just kind of ignored the process they're supposed to follow, uh, ignored their uh, requirement to look at endangered species, and we sued them on that as well. Uh, the latter one, now the, the government has agreed that they didn't do what they're supposed to. We're talking right now about how they're going to make that right. The other two lawsuits are still pending. We believe we've got a very strong case, uh, and we believe we'll ultimately be successful. But court cases just take forever to go forward. And the fourth case is actually with the state of Minnesota. So I mentioned there's laws and there's rules. Laws are passed by the legislature. Rules are written by the agencies, in this case, the Department of Natural Resources. And uh, there is a provision in Minnesota state law that says anybody in Minnesota, if you see a rule that you think is supposed to protect the environment and it doesn't, you can petition the state to fix that rule. And that's what we did. We looked at those rules and we, and we saw that they, the rules allow for a mine right next to the boundary water, which is totally incompatible. We said, well, that does not protect the environment. So we sued the state of Minnesota, uh, claiming that the law is insufficient. And right now, it's, we're kind of discussing back and forth. But the long and the short of it is we believe that the DNR will agree with us and they will open up that part of the rule for a public input process. And hopefully we'll change that rule so that uh, the state would no longer allow a mine in the watershed of the boundary waters. But all those legal things, they just take forever to go and it's just, uh, it's like watching paint dry. Do you think, to, to be clear, is the construction of the mine halted as these lawsuits go through or? So the, the while the company has put forward a draft plan, there's still this long process that has to be followed before they can even put a shovel on the ground. So um, at the end of the day, they have to have a permit, permit to mine, and that's provided by the DNR. But before they ever get to that, they have to go through a long environmental review process. So they have to develop an environmental impact statement. And that is a, a very, very detailed analysis of the project, and it involves public comment. So we can look at it and say, well, you've got to fix this and you missed that. Um, they have just barely started it. When the company d- submitted their mine plan, that kicks off that process. And so right now, both the state government and the federal government are looking at that plan. They're identifying questions that the company has to answer about, you know, what Im- impact is this going to have on the environment? You know, when there is an impact, how are you going to mitigate it? And so on and so forth. So they're at the very beginning of that process with a project like this, it could take, you know, three to five years for them to get through that before they'd ever get to the stage of actually uh, uh, applying for a permit. So there's, so like I say, they've done some drilling there to explore, but they have not done any, taken any steps yet to actually open the mine. 
And that's why we're trying to stop it now. We don't want them to get any further down that process because we just think at the end of the day, it is just not appropriate. I think when you were describing the threat of the mine to the boundary waters and just kind of all the different levels of how this could affect the community and the environment and even the nation at large, I was wondering, uh, would you say the story of the boundary waters of a protected national treasure um, being threatened by a mine, is that a unique story or would you say that fits into a larger national story? It's absolutely a national story, especially over the last four years. You know, you've you all heard about Bears Ears and Escalante. You know, it's very important for people to realize that public lands, while, while the, we, we think of the government as owning them, you and I own them. These are our public lands. You can go and camp anywhere you want on a Superior National Forest for free. You know, I mean, these are public lands that nobody in any other developed country has that kind of a treasure available to, I got to show you this. I got deer running down my street. Hope I didn't. Oh my God. Can you see that? Yeah, that's so cool. (laughs) Oh my God, I look out the window and there's deer running down the street. Wow. 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 Life is crazy in Shoreview. In any event, so I was saying, um, you know, these public lands, they belong to all of us. And they're just this tremendous national treasure that we have, um, whether it's Yellowstone or Glacier or Yosemite or the Boundary Waters. It belongs to all of us, but there are some people who that just drives them crazy because they see that they could make money here. They see that they could go and mine here. They see they could, you know, build a Disney World here or whatever. And, and so they're always looking for ways to take those public lands from us and turn them into private gains for them. And unfortunately, under the last president, there was a wholesale grifting of finding ways to allow for private companies to turn those public lands into private profits. And so you saw oil and gas, you saw the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge, ANWR, opened up. You saw Bristol Bay almost happened. Uh, The uh, uh, mentioned Bears Ears and Escalante opened up for uh, oil drilling and mining, just very concerted effort to try and um, squeeze money out of these public lands at a loss for you and me. And so the Boundary Waters was one example, uh, is also an example where there was a, a company, a set of executives who have an abundance of cash and, a, and an ability to call in big favors from a, you know, a billionaire buddy. And, and that's what happened. So we know that, um, you know, Anafagasta, the Chilean company, uh, shortly after the election, after the, after the 2016 election, they bought a mansion in Washington, D.C., and then leased that to Jared and Ivanka. So the president's kids were living in a mansion that was owned by the company that wanted this mine. And shortly after, within weeks of the presidential inauguration, they were already trying to talk about how to give this mine back to Anafagasta. So just immense corruption, um, again, to make rich people richer at the expense of you and me. For sure, for sure. We read a little bit about how youth and kids are kind of involved within this, like, for example, like the Kids for the Boundary Waters. What role do youth have within this large scope, um, like activism campaign and that sort of thing? Well, I will only say that the younger you are, the more you have at stake. Right, I might get another 20 years of use out of the boundary waters, but you're going to get 70 years out of the boundary waters, and so you've got much more at stake than I do. 
And so, um, you know, uh, Kids for the Bounty Waters was formed by Joseph Golsey. Joseph, uh, I believe he was 14 or 15 at the time he got a cancer diagnosis. And he was offered to make a wish. You know, the diagnosis was, was that severe. And uh, he thought about it, thought about it. He said, you know, what I want to do is I want to save the Bounty Waters. So that became his make a wish. So he formed Kids for the Bounty Waters. And we've had a number of kids uh, join that, you know, another a uh, very similar story, Julia Ruel, uh, is, she's now a college student. She also got diagnosed with cancer. She also joined Kids for the Bounty Waters. And they've, so they've got a great following. And, you know, it's not just people who, you know, uh, have cancer. It's, it's everybody who's been there. And, you know, they've been very effective, in, especially in working with elected officials and spreading the word. You know, so we've got college campus uh, chapters, for instance, spreading the word and in contacting elected officials. So until, you know, last year when COVID hit, every year the kids would organize a fly-in to Washington, D.C. And two years ago, they had 70 kids, seven zero kids flew into Washington, D.C. and met with elected representatives. They actually met with Bernie Sanders, you know, and they met with a bunch of other elected officials, 19 different elected officials, as well as their staff. And um, we have heard from a number of electeds that that has been a tremendously impactful event for them because... You know, these kids are, you know, telling, pouring their hearts out, telling their stories and talking about the future and, and you know, the things that we've already been talking about. And so uh, that has been a, a tremendous support system for us, a tremendous way to get, you know, youth like yourself interested and engaged. And we're deeply appreciative of the, the work that they do. If you don't mind, I'd like to hear more about the movement in general. How, apart from the lawsuits, how do you protest um, the mines and other attempts to? So the, you know, the long and the short of it is this mine is either going to go forward or it's going to stop based on decision makers, what decision makers do. And those, for the most part, are elected people. So there are Congress people, uh, your senators and your representatives in Congress. There are, uh, in the case of Minnesota, there are Minnesota legislators. Uh, there are governor uh, and it's and it's the president. And so uh, really what we try to do at the campaign is, is, you know, again, provide this kind of information to people who are interested and then give them the tools that they need to connect with elected officials. So right now on our website, there's what we call an action page. And on that, it's got seven different things that we're involved in all of which have an opportunity for the average person to click a link and send a letter to, to somebody. Uh, they're not all active right now because, you know, only some of those uh, actions are relevant right now. But so, for instance, right now in Congress, uh, Representative Betty McCollum from Minnesota is going to introduce a bill that she had last year. She's going to reintroduce it this year called the Bounty Waters Pollution Prevention Permanent Protection Act. Uh, and anybody's uh, congressperson, you have a senator, and everybody's got a senator and a representative in Congress. Everybody's Congress people can support Betty's bill. And so we'll, if you signed up on our website to sign a petition, you get onto our email list, we'll send out an action alert at the appropriate time, you know, we'll call it a call to action and direct you to that website, direct, direct you to that spot where there is a button you can push that will automatically bring up your legislate, your Congress people's email address. And so you can automatically send them a note saying, you know, I, I want you to support Betty McCollum's bill. I believe in protecting the Boundary Waters. You know, this is, uh, this is a special place and we need to save it kind of a thing. And so, and so that, you know, uh, it, with Congress, um, with the president, 
with the uh, federal agencies, the Forest Service and the, and the uh, uh, Department of Interior. At different times this year, we will have calls to action and say, please contact these people and we're going to make it easy for you to do that. Yes, that's so great. We've read a bit that about 70% of Minnesotans believe that mining adjacent to the boundary waters is unacceptable. Do you feel that this is a bipartisan issue? And if so, why do you think this stretches across party lines? So we have done surveys every other year for like four years. And actually this year, the biggest paper in Minnesota, the Star Tribune, also did a poll. And uh, the results are all always the same. When we ask Minnesotans about mining, by and large, Minnesotans support mining. You know, we've got a long history of iron mining on the Iron Range, which is far from the Boundary Waters, but an overwhelming majority of people are opposed to mining next to the Boundary Waters. And it's, it's ranged from 60% to 70% over the years, but, this, but the opposition to it has increased over time as people learn more and more about it. And, uh, and only 20% of people support it, then there's the undecided. So it's a three to one margin, people oppose this mine in Minnesota. And it's not just the people in Minneapolis and St. Paul that are opposed to it. When you look at Northeast Minnesota, 56% of the people in Northeast Minnesota, which is where the Boundary Waters is, where the mine would be, oppose the mine. And it's across all the parties, you know, Republican, Democrat, Independent, uh, across all parties, a majority of people in any of those parties oppose it because it doesn't matter what party you are, you know, people love to go outdoors. People love to go up to the Northwoods. People love to go to the Boundary Waters and nobody wants to see it destroyed. So it's bipartisan. It's got no gender bias. It's got no geographic bias. It's it's across, uh, you know, all demographics. Yeah, I think that's a pretty powerful statement, those numbers. Well, I was wondering, what kind of future for environmental policy in the U.S. do you hope for as kind of a general, like, what is your vision of an ideal environmental policy? You know, um, one of the things I've come to realize is that you only get strong movements when things go really bad, you know. And so I used to work for a group called Ducks Unlimited. Ducks Unlimited has been around for a long time. They started when the droughts hit in the 1930s and duck populations plummeted. Things got so bad, people organized. You know, I worked for Nature Conservancy. People got so concerned about deforestation and climate change back in the 50s. They formed, you know, they formed the Nature Conservancy. You know, you see this on every issue. When things are going well, people get complacent and they don't really get involved. But when things start going bad, people organize and they, and they create movements and they create organizations and they, and they get things going. I think the last four years has probably done more to galvanize people around environmental protection than probably the 30 years before that. Climate change People recognize that it's real and they recognize that the government was doing nothing to, to stem it. And, uh, and so we've got a huge movement now to, to work on climate change. And so, uh, and I think as well, you know, so much of the racial injustice, the, the discrimination that's been going on has really energized a lot of younger people than have historically uh, been active. So I just think those those two things, you know, the, the state of the environment, the willingness of especially younger people to engage in these issues uh, really sparks a new movement. You know, Greta Thunberg, for instance, you know, when does a 16-year-old ever get international exposure? And so I think once people get a, a realization that they can make a difference, once they realize that here's an issue that I am passionate about, 
they will get into that and they will not leave. And so as you turn 20 and 30 and 40 and 50, you will find that you're still actively engaged. So I'm optimistic. You know, the thing that, the thing that I think about as well is that the population keeps growing and it's growing dramatically. And we don't, you know, once upon a time, people used to talk about population control. We don't talk about that anymore, but the impact of that population is obvious when you think about climate change, but it also is gonna have a huge bearing on wild places. We are gonna have less and less space per person as the population grows and as we convert these wild places into developments or farm fields or whatever. And so I think people are gonna start realizing that you know, we've, we've been given a tremendous gift here in these public lands, these wilderness areas. And if we don't start taking care of them, pretty soon we aren't gonna have them. And that would be a huge, huge loss for us as a, as a nation. I completely agree. It's been just so inspiring over like the last four years and more as well, just to see like how young people and like people from every demographic have been rallying around causes that they believe in. And like what you were saying about how people often don't rally around something until it gets really dire. We've, we've seen that before. And so it's kind of a shame that it has to get to that point, but it's really good to see that we can come back from that as well. People will realize some successes and that makes them all feel all more empowered, which is good. Definitely. Those successes just keep us going. And even little ones are just something that you can see, like we have hope in this as well and have take optimism from. Just to thank you so much for chatting with us today. This has just been such a great interview. Um, Thank you so much. Finally, we were just wondering if there was any like website or book or anything you wanted to to plug on here for a minute if that was something you were interested in well my pleasure to being here thank you for having me i've already plugged the website in the book right so boundarywaters.org <laughs> is a website dirty shirt yep. but, but you know some of you may be familiar with these names you know a lot of the when you go the boundary water has been really you know it's, the place has been there forever right but the designation started coming in 1909 and 1964 and 1978 one of the people who really inspired the movement is a fellow by the name of Sigurd Olson, wrote a number of stories, a number of books about the Boundary Waters area and was pivotal in getting the Boundary Waters created. So his, I think his first book was called A Listening Point, but he's got other three or four other books that are all just very, very inspiring. They're inspirational type books, you know, not like your textbook that you have to read or, or you know, a fiction book or whatever. And uh, they're still widely available. I'd encourage people to take a look at Sig Olson's work. Uh, it really does a great job of describing not just the, the area, but also the, the connection to it, the emotions you, you get uh, in being in that area. So, uh, so that's very good. And then there's a couple of good uh, videos that have come out lately. So a public trust uh, is one that talks about uh, several uh, wilderness areas and the threats to them. I'd, I'd highly recommend that, a public trust. And the other is Northern Light, um, and this is one that was just that just came out um, uh, recently, and it describes a, a, a filmmaker's uh, adventure in the Boundary Water. So a couple of really good videos to look at as well. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, if there is there anything else you want to add? Uh-huh. Well, please check out our website, sign up, and uh, tons of information. In fact, those documentaries you can find those on there as well. So take a look at that, and uh, and I just. I hope everybody gets a chance to get up there. You know, it's, it is a totally awesome area. Um, it's incredible. Yeah. And it's something a beginner can do. 
you know, you don't, you can go and get all outfitted at an outfitter and they'll tell you where to go and what to bring. And, and, uh, you can rent a canoe or something. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) That's a great experience. And the other thing I'd say is go in August when there's no bugs. (laughs) Very good advice. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. This was just such a good conversation. Nice to meet you and lovely to talk with you. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you as well. Good luck with the show. We hope you enjoy this episode of Youth Talk Climate. A huge thanks to our guest, Tom Landwer. Youth Talk Climate is created by a group of youth action fellows from the Alliance for Climate Education. These fellows are Sophie Smith, Callie Gagan, Julian Aranas, Salem Ilfred, Lizzie Morales, and Mario Conacasco. You can find Youth Talk Climate on Instagram at Youth Talk Climate. Thank you very much for listening.